Good. Hey. Um, today, uh, we're going to be looking at two texts. I got two texts for you. Uh, the first comes from Genesis chapter 1 and the second, Matthew 28. So, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And now Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, excuse me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, over the last few weeks, six-ish weeks, uh, Matt has been taking us through a series called On Purpose in which we have been trying to discover what is God's calling on our lives as individuals. Like, what, what does he want us to do in this world? How has he formed us to uniquely reveal his glory in this world in a way that nobody else does? And the word that we use for that in the church is vocation, right? What is our vocation? It comes from the Latin word voco, which means to call. So we often talk about our calling in this world. There's a particular way that God has designed each of us to live in this world. And as individuals, there are few more satisfying things to know than exactly what it is God has called us to in this world. To have it like shape our guts and inform the way that we move through this world and, and live and have our being in this world. But as beautiful as such a thing is, I'd wager that like, if we just canceled the sermon and I sat down with each one of us, you know, one-on-one -on -one and asked, what is your individual calling from God? I would wager, not a betting man, but if I were, I would wager less than half of us would be able to be able to clearly articulate what that is with authority. Why is that? Well, part of it, surely, as Matt has been just demonstrating for us over the last six weeks, is that it takes a lot of work to, to discern this, right? It takes a lot of prayer and searching the scriptures and being in conference with other believers. And in, in, in my experience, most people who are clear on their individual vocation have struggled mightily with the Lord in long seasons in prayer in order to clarify it. And it may be that in our various seasons of life right now, we just don't have that kind of time. Now, now to be clear, I think the time is worth it, whatever it costs, but regardless, I'm also a realist, and I realize that not everyone, even if they're willing, can do that kind of work. The Lord does know how to make clear his calling for you and for me. And if he wills, he could do it in a moment. But more often than not, he doesn't appear in a blinding light and knock us off our horse and blind us and say like he did to Saul of Tarsus, you are my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Man, that's, that's clear. No, no doubt whatsoever. And Paul never equivocated from that for all of his life. 
But most of us don't have that kind of experience. It's a long process. So what are we to do in the meantime? Well, my job over the next three weeks is to show you the vocation, the calling that all of us share in common. Like no matter who you are as a Christian, the calling that I'm about to explain over the next three weeks belongs to all of us. These are not callings for individuals. God is calling to all of us. And the truth is, even if these general callings that I'm about to explain to us, even if this was all we ever knew, we, we could lay our head down in the grave having lived a life pleasing in God's sight. So this week, we're going to consider the calling that God gave uh, us Christians and no other people, namely the task of announcing the kingdom of God to all the inhabitants of the earth. In order to do that, let's break it down into three headings. Number one, the call to common work. The call to common work. Number two, the call to holy work. Uh, maybe you're already starting to freak out. Of it. Just, just follow me. Common work, holy work, and the power we get to do both. Okay? So number one, let's talk about the call to common work. If you want to know the purpose that God has for all of humanity, then the first place we have to go is Genesis chapter 1. And here God tells us exactly the purpose that he has in mind when creating human beings for himself. We just read it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, it's going to require some explanation. But unfortunately, I only have time for a brief one. Now, recall from Genesis chapter 2 that at this point in the creation of the world, the entire created order, all of it, everything that was created was divided into three parts. First, there was Eden, which is where God dwelled. It's where God lived. Then there was the Garden of Eden, which is where humanity dwelt. And then there was everything else, the rest of creation, the rest of the earth, which was untamed and wild. Now, I've talked about this in other sermons at length, so I can't go into it here. If you have questions, let me know. Now, the whole point is, in the created order, there are three divisions, Eden, the Garden of Eden, and then the rest of the untamed creation. Now, understanding this threefold division of creation is at the heart of understanding our vocation as human beings. In those days, there was only one cultivated place on the entire earth. That's what Genesis tells us. The one cultivated place on the entire earth, and that was the garden, right? And in that garden, God dwelt with humanity. He would come and walk in the cool of the day with the beings that he had created. So the garden, listen, listen, the garden was humanity's place of communion with God. And so with that established, just get ready to have your mind blown here. God's command to his images, human beings, on earth was this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. In other words, expand the borders 
of the cultivated garden until it fills the entire earth. That's what he means by rule and subdue the earth. There's one spot that's cultivated. This is where I dwell with humanity. Everything else is wild and untamed. So what I want you to do is to go out and rule and subdue all of that wildness until the whole earth is a garden in which God dwells with his people. Is that amazing? That was the vocation that God called his people to. That's the impulse that was implanted in us by God himself. That was to be our calling and our purpose and the task for which God created us. Go out, rule, subdue, until all of creation radiates with the glory of my presence. In theology, we call this the cultural mandate. It's not a not in the Bible, but that's what we call it. It was a cultural mandate. That was the impulse to go out and to build cities and to cultivate and to build families and all of this. This is the cultural mandate. Fill the earth with my presence. And listen to this. In Genesis 1 and 2, the cultural mandate was holy work. Okay, you follow? The cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and 2 was holy work. To tame that wilderness, to build cities, to enact laws, to elect legislatures, all of it was to be holy work done to extend God's garden throughout all the earth. But, of course, the story doesn't end with Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3 comes in, and with it, a serpent into the garden. And the whole project crashed against the rocks as sin and death entered the world. And at that, humanity was cast out of the garden, right? Outside of the presence of God, of the place where God dwelt with his people. And that's when a significant change occurred in our callings as human beings. The cultural mandate... Listen, the cultural mandate to go out and tame the wildness of the earth, that was never revoked. And we did. We went out from the garden building cities and civilizations and diverse culture. But that work, after being expelled from the garden, that became common work, not holy work. Listen, God's calling for us to rule and subdue and fill the earth after Genesis 3 is a calling that all human beings share regardless of whether or not they call upon the name of the Lord or not. It is a calling that is exercised after the fall by common grace, not by redeeming grace. Are you with me so far? Some complex ideas. I was telling somebody I had to cut like four pages from this. But, so I don't know if the explanations, but is this landing? Are you feeling it? Okay, this is good. All right. The immediate application of all of this, at least in my eyes, is this. In light of our common calling as human beings to go out and rule and subdue, is this. Everyone who works to bring order out of chaos is doing the work assigned to them by the Lord. 
everyone. A teacher who brings order to the scattered knowledge of her students is obeying the cultural mandate. A financial planner who orders the scattered and chaotic nature of a person's finances is taming the wilderness of the earth. Do you see that? A plumber who fixes a leak is bringing order to chaos and thus fulfilling God's calling. A parent who stays home with the children and does the unflattering and repetitious tasks of cleaning and making food. They're bringing order to the chaos of their family's life and thus fulfilling the calling of God, the cultural mandate. But to be clear, while that work before Genesis 3 would have been considered holy work, which is to say set apart, after Genesis 3, it is common work because everyone participates regardless of whether or not they call upon the name of the Lord. All parents make sandwiches for their children, whether they are God's people or not. A Christian plumber can fix a pipe just as well as a pagan one can. And if anyone can do it, regardless of their belief, it is common work. That doesn't make it any less important, to be clear. It certainly doesn't make it any less God's calling, but it is common work nonetheless. So let me summarize what I've said so far. God's general calling to all human beings was to rule the earth and subdue it, which is to say, tame the wild places with the cultivation of the garden. And that was work to be done until the entire earth was filled with the presence of God. And that was holy work, right? It was in, before Genesis 3, that work was only given to God's people because no other, there were no other people. It was God's people and that's it. And so he said, that was holy work. If Genesis 3 had never happened, our task to build civilizations and make families and create cultural artifacts would have been our holy vocation. But that calling was shipwrecked by the entrance of sin in Genesis chapter 3. So now, while we still go on to create order out of chaos, it's common work, not holy work. And no, listen, no amount of culture building, no amount of legislation, No amount of education will bring God's kingdom to bear on this world. It's common work. Even so, we get a hint of what is to come for this world in the midst of the fall in Genesis 3. God says, right as he is pronouncing judgment upon them, he says that there will be a son who comes from the woman. And when that son is born, he will triumph over the serpent by crushing his head, even as the serpent bruises his heel. And so when we get to the New Testament, we can see that in the person of Jesus Christ, that God has given all who call on him a new holy work. And that's what we're going to consider now. This is the work that we have been called to according to Jesus. We call it the Great Commission. And it comes to us from the mouth of our Lord in Matthew 28. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And they saw him, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As I've said before, there is only one assignment given to the church of Jesus Christ that if the church doesn't do it, it will not get done. If the church disappeared from the earth, the poor would still be cared for. There'd be government organizations and NGOs and all that. So the poor would still be cared for if the church disappeared from the earth. If the church disappeared from the earth, the education of children would still continue. If the church disappeared from the earth, people would still find occasions to gather together in communities and belong to one another. So what is the church good for? The unique task of the church of Jesus Christ, according to him right here, is to make disciples. Or to say it another way, the Great Commission has become the holy work that we do in the midst of our common work in fulfilling the cultural mandate to fill the earth and rule and subdue. Okay, let me stop for a moment. Some of you might squirm when I say that because wasn't one of the great reforms in the Reformation that all of our work is equal? You don't have different classes of people like priests who do the real work of God and then the bakers who, you know, just, they're just baking. It's not holy work. Am I making that distinction here? No. Absolutely not. The bread baker pleases the Lord by her baking in the same way that the preacher pleases the Lord by his preaching. And yes, we have to hold on to that. That is absolutely true. I don't mean holy in that way. Like there are different things that please the Lord more than others, different kinds of work that pleases the Lord. No, that's not the distinction I'm making. I mean holy work in the sense that it is literally separate. This is a work that is given to a particular group of people on this earth, namely God's people, and to nobody else. In that way, it is holy work. It is a set-apart and separate work. A person can bake bread and feed the world, whether she does it unto the Lord or completely unto herself. And in both cases, God is pleased with the work because through that work, he feeds his people meaning all of us. However, there is a holy work, a work set apart, and that is only given to those who call upon the name of the Lord, and that is to make disciples. Now, there's nothing closer to the heart of the church's mission than making disciples of all nations. The church cares for the poor, yes, in order to make disciples. The church educates her children, yes, in order to make disciples. The church gathers for worship in order to make disciples. And as we go out proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, we are making disciples. And that is our unique contribution 
to this world. If we don't proclaim the excellencies of him who transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, no one will. So it is of utmost importance that we understand what Jesus meant when he spoke these words to his disciples and what exactly the task is that he has handed us as we await his return. So I want to ask a couple of questions of this text and see if we can understand it. So first, according to this, why are we to make disciples? Why? Well, Jesus begins the Great Commission with a statement you may have noticed, of authority. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if you've ever read the Gospels, that statement should not surprise you. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, if we just want to choose the one that we're in, people have marveled at Jesus' authority, saying, like, we never heard anything like this, a teaching with authority. But here in this final commission, Jesus gathers up all the separate strands of authority, and he combines them all and says, all authority has been given to Christ. Now, if someone has authority, that means that they have power to create an obligation in someone else, right? If someone has authority, that means they have power to create an obligation in someone else. And if that's so, then we see that Jesus' claim to authority is total because his greatness is unmatched. Therefore, the capacity to create an obligation in the lives of his disciples is likewise total. Utmost authority creates utmost obligation. Whatever proceeds from Jesus' mouth after that is going to require us some serious consideration. We have to, after all authority has been given to me, what is he going to say? Because it's a non-negotiable obligation to us to obey it. And here's what he says in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, there's so much to be said here, I can only say a little bit. The only active verb in the entire commission is make disciples. Everything else is just modifying that. So make disciples. And let's dwell on that concept for a minute. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. Um, something like an apprentice. <clears throat> now, the American concept of learning is much different than the biblical concept of learning. Like to an American, believe me, I was a teacher for many years, uh, I, I know this, to, to an American, learning is a lot like, a, we, we conceive of it as transfer of information from one brain to another brain. For example, you know, if if I, as a teacher, explain the Battle of Bull Run to my students, and then on the test they're able to reproduce that information, then we say, ah, learning has occurred. Isn't that wonderful? But to ancient Jews, something much different when it comes to learning. Learning for them involved the entirety of a person's mind, heart, will, and body. 
That's why apprenticing is a better concept for discipleship. According to the Bible, a person cannot say that he or she knows anything until that information has worked itself out through a person's hands and feet and mouth. Knowledge, according to the Bible, if it's truly knowledge, moves the will and shapes the affections until it changes who you are. So, a disciple is someone who has heard the great truth that in the death of Christ, their sins are forgiven, and then who has allowed that great truth to alter the way that they live and move and have their being in this world. But furthermore, the disciple is one who, having heard and acted on these great, great truths, finds that they are more beautiful and more satisfying than any other truth that he or she has been presented with. And that brings us to the next teaching in this commission. Who is the object of this disciple-making? Now that we're at a break, I need to fix this. Let's uh, talk amongst yourselves for a second. Oh, it came off. All right, well, we're going we're gonna to go with it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right. Who's the object of this disciple-making? Well, the arena of disciple-making, according to Jesus, is all nations. The one who has all authority, Jesus, desires that all nations confess, to use Paul's words from Philippians 2, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The scope of Christ's commissions, Christ's commission includes people in China and people in Russia and people in Peru, suburbanites in Atlanta. But let's not assume that the word go means that every Christian is under orders to leave their home and go make disciples in a foreign nation. It is true that there exists nations in our world who, and peoples who never heard that Jesus Christ has come and is reconciling sinners to himself by the gospel of grace. And so some of us, yes, must go to them and announce the kingdom of God. But the word go in the Greek, which is the original language this is written in, it means like going as you go. Therefore, Christ's church is to make disciples as we go. Like as you go to school, make disciples. As you go to the grocery store, make disciples. As you play baseball, make disciples. In other words, making disciples is an intention that touches and influences every part of life from the mundane all the way into the extraordinary. So that's the answer to the first question. Second question I want to ask of this text is, okay, how? How do we do this? How do we make disciples? Well, if we're listening closely to all that Jesus has commanded us, the proper response is fear and trembling. He has all authority and he has given us, his people, this command and has created an obligation in us to obey it. And that's tempting to believe that we don't have what we need for this mission to accomplish it. Like we look inside of ourselves and actually there's much rebellion there and desires contrary to the Lord. But I have good news for you. The only requirement, according to Jesus, the only requirement for making disciples is to be a disciple yourself. Remember, 
Disciples are learners, apprentices. They are not masters. And this is why I think it's very interesting. At the beginning of our text, I don't even know if you noticed it or not, in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Jesus gave the command to make disciples to disciples, not apostles. Now, to be fair, these men would go on to become apostles. But it's not saying that here. They are disciples. They are learners of Jesus. I think it's significant that they are still referred to as disciples. That tells me that the Great Commission is a command and a vocation and a calling that even the simplest followers of Christ can obey and carry out. And so what are the means by which we carry it out? Well, he answers us that too. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay? So there are, according to Jesus, two interconnected means involved with disciple making. Number one, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number two, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, this is really interesting, especially if you've been in the church for more than five minutes. Here in America, we are very practical people. We constantly invest our energies into making complex things very simple. And so if you've been in the church for the past 50 years or so, you've no doubt come across some very Americanized programs for evangelism, you know? I mean, we've made our tracks, we've given them out, we've had awkward conversations, we've sat through weeks of training that taught us formulas for getting the person to pray the prayer. And, you know, I I know I'm talking about this like it's um, got a little edge in my voice. I know some of the, I mean, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with these things. Faithful people have invested their energies in these things. Okay, but I was even deeply into this. In my college years, um, I worked for a campus evangelization, parachurch ministry. And one of the things um, I'm particularly embarrassed about when I think back to that time was our day to go out and evangelize on Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. You know, we had our stack of tracks and our fanny packs and we would just ask people who were, who were just trying to relax, you know, just at the beach for crying out loud. But, you know, they needed to know about Jesus. And so we would talk to them and, you know, whatever, try to get them to have what we called spiritual conversations. And then the culmination of that day was that a bunch of us put on a little show, which was essentially a dozen of us playing slow motion football on the beach. You're like, what is slow motion football? That's it. That's what it is. And uh, and sure enough, a crowd gathered around us watching this ridiculous thing happen because we're all dressed up in ridiculous costumes doing it. Drew a crowd and then at the end, one of our guys stood up and made the connection between slow-mo football and Jesus. Did you know Jesus played slow-mo football too? He did, and he loves you and has a career. Okay, now, it was... <laughs> I, I, this is the first time I publicly confessed this. Anyway, um, 
<laughs> don't judge me. Now, to be fair, to be fair, look, <laughs> as embarrassing as that is for me, we were just trying to be as faithful to the Great Commission as we could be. Yes. The point I want to make is this. None of these formulas for making disciples was given to us by Jesus. We made these things up to make a hard thing easier and clearer for us. And there's some good to that, and there's, not some, there's some things that are not good about that. But we are not beholden to any of them. But here's where I tell you that Jesus himself actually did give us a divinely sanctioned formula for making disciples. He said, go. He said, baptize. And he said, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Some of us will go to the nations. Some of us go to the carpool line. But we make verbal proclamations witnessing to the reality of God's kingdom and the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. And for those who respond, we bring them into the community and we baptize them. And then over the course of their lives through worship and preaching and the sacrament, we teach them to obey all that God in Christ has commanded us. And so... As we go about our lives, fulfilling our general calling under the cultural mandate, yes, let's reach back to the first part of the sermon, we're going through our lives, at our jobs, raising kids, going to the grocery store, as we're fulfilling our general calling under the cultural mandate, bringing order out of chaos, each of us carries a holy work in the midst of that common work. It's a work set apart, and that work is to make disciples. That is the calling that all of us bear. And that distinction is important to dwell on for a moment. The distinction between our, our common work and our holy work, and the fact that making disciples actually does require words, verbal proclamation. Like, you know that old saying that uh, you preach, what is it? Preach the gospel daily. If necessary, use words. You know this? Yes? The idea behind that saying is that if we do our work under the cultural mandate with excellence, as in we Christians are the best car mechanics around, that we Christians teach our children with distinction. That we Christians develop the best software in the world. If we do those things under our cultural mandate with excellence, then somehow the world will see that excellence and infer that God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ in his saving death and resurrection and that he shed his blood for us on the cross and is now reconciling sinners to himself. It's, it's insane, right? That is not, th those two do not touch. <laughs> if I fix someone's car and I do it well and I'm honest about the charges, you know what people are going to think? Wow, like I'm glad I've got a good mechanic. They're not going to get their bill and fall to their knees and cast their eyes to heaven and say, forgive me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. So we can never conflate our common work with our holy work. Our common calling and our holy calling 
in the Great Commission. And that means we must use words to tell people about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how by those two acts, Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Now, there's no formula for what that means we ought to do besides going and baptizing and teaching them to obey. I'm not saying that you all need to go out and stand on street corners after this and proclaim the gospel with picket signs. I mean, you know, whatever. You do you. That's fine if you want to. I'm not saying that you need to go to the food court after this at North Point Mall and visit every table to see how people are doing with Jesus. Like, for some reason, in general, that's where we tend to go with this. Right? And there are some people who are gifted in that way. That's fine. God bless you. It doesn't have to be awkward. It just has to be real. It has to be in obedience to Christ's commands. And this happens, again, as you go. We've been given the Spirit of God, and the Spirit knows how to lead us into situations and occasions where the soil of a person's heart is fertile for the gospel. So, what do we do? We, just, we must become attuned to his leadership. And again, that takes time. Now, third and finally, in Briefly, we've talked about our common work. We've talked about our holy work. Now, where do we get the power to obey this commandment? However beautiful that task might appear to us <clears throat> in our eyes as we're sitting here concentrating on it right now, it surely is very daunting. But Christ tells us exactly where the power comes from in order to accomplish our holy work. And it's in verse 20 of Matthew 28. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's several things going on in here. Number one, he announces, where are we going to get the power? Number one, he announces his favor first. He says, I am with you. The task that stands before the disciples and then through them, the people sitting in this room, right, were the inheritors of this commission, is beyond any power or skill that we possess. But Jesus promises, in accomplishing this mission, I am with you. I'm with you to carry you through the difficulties of the task. I'm with you to bear you up when you are bowed low. I'm with you to plead your cause in the throne room of heaven. I'm with you when you suffer for the sake of announcing the good news of the kingdom of God to the nations. So the first place we find power to complete this mission is the favor of Jesus. I am with you. Second place we find power is in the duration of the favor. He says, I am with you always. Jesus promises that his presence shall never cease among his people. As you go out making disciples... Brothers and sisters, he is with you always. In the seasons of life when it seems like you only have to just like tickle the soil and the harvest returns 30, 60, 100 times what you sowed, he is with you. In the seasons when, you have, when you've come to the edge of exhaustion, despair, because there's no rain and no fruit and no harvest, he is with you always. 
His promise is sure, and he, and he is with you accomplishing this mission, no matter what the data are telling you. He has promised to be with you, and though every man be found a liar, still Christ will be found true. Number three, he has promised to be with us always. This holy work that he has given us, he says, will come to an end. The holy work of announcing his kingdom and making disciples, this will end. He says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. This age in which we live is currently passing away. It is not the eternal realm. The new age to come in which God dwells with his people has been planted in this age, but it has not yet come to full fruition. One day, as we have seen, Christ will return in glory. We will raise our heads and, and look to him in the sky and we will see the face of the one whom we have always longed to see. And in that day, in that day, the commission will be complete. Our holy work will have been accomplished and he will bring the fullness of his kingdom to bear on the earth. No longer invisible and spiritually discerned, but in power and exceeding glory. And furthermore, in that day, the new creation, the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven. It's the city of God, right? And again, I've preached about this many times before, so I don't have time to go into it now. But the city of God, according to Revelation 21, is shaped as a cube, which, if you remember, is symbolic of the presence of God. And that's when it will dawn upon us. As the saints of God stream into the city of God, both the cultural mandate by which God commanded us to extend his garden throughout the world until his presence filled the earth and the culture, excuse me, the great commission, the holy work by which Christ commanded us to witness to him so that his table might be full. Both of these things in that day will be complete. Isn't that astonishing? Well, now we come to the table of God table of Christ that he has set for us in our midst. I said that in fulfilling our holy work, the Great Commission, we make verbal proclamation that Christ has died and Christ has risen and that he will come again. And he is reconciling sinners to himself. That's what this table is. At this table, you and I, we are being made into disciples because as you come and get the, the cup and the bread, Someone is going to say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And you believe it. And you are taught to obey all that he has commanded you. So let us pray and then we will come to the table. Father in heaven, when we consider the task that is in front of us, it is almost too much. <clears throat> and frankly, I don't know of anyone who would do it this way. You have taken something of inestimable worth and put it in jars of clay that are more fragile than we care to admit. <clears throat> and so, 
All we can do is marvel at such a thing and ask you to give us grace in our weakness to witness to the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because if we don't, no one will. So grant us the satisfaction that comes when we do the work that pleases the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, this meal is for you, so come and welcome to Jesus Christ.